Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Tavera Talk. I'm Melissa Stuttered and this is the Blog Talk Radio show for Tiferet, a journal of spiritual literature where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now, and we would love for you to also join our global online community. You can find it at www.tiferetjournal.com. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own, you can subscribe to the journal which in each issue presents beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's guest is award-winning poet, memoirist, playwright, and professor Doug Anderson. Anderson is the author of the poetry collections The Moon Reflected Fire and Blues for Unemployed Secret Police as well as the play Short Timers and the memoir, Keep Your Head Down, Vietnam, the 60s, and a Journey of Self-Discovery. Anderson's awards include a Pushcart Prize and a Kate Tuff Discovery Award, in addition to grants and fellowships from the Academy of American Poets, the Massachusetts Artists Foundation, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, Poets and Writers, National Endowment of the Arts, and the McDowell Colony. Anderson currently teaches for Smith College, Emerson College, and the William Joyner Center for the Study of War and its Social Consequences at the University of Massachusetts. Of Anderson's poetry, Martina Spada states, he is one of the bravest poets I know utterly uncompromising. His language brims with compassion, rage, tenderness, and pain. Anderson is cursed and blessed with memory, and his considerable poetic gift assures that we won't forget either. Hi, Doug. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi, Melissa. Oh, wonderful. I'm going to check really quickly and make sure Jeff can hear us. Jeff, are you there? I am, Melissa. I am so looking forward to this wonderful interview, having another Uh, fellow. And Doug Anderson's work is just um, phenomenal. Um, In the chat room, um, if anybody's listening, they can log into Blog Talk Radio, the Ferret chat room. I'll be looking for questions there for Doug, adding his links, links to the Ferret and also to the Ferret Talk interviews book, which is just replaced. So um, thank you so much. Looking forward to this, Melissa. Okay, thank you so much, Jeff. And um, so Jeff will be in the chat room if anyone has questions, and I'll just leave you unmuted in case you want to pop in and let me know if someone has a question. So, um, Doug, would you start by telling us about how and when you came to poetry and how your relationship with poetry and your subject matter has evolved over the years? Um, I, uh, I'm i not sure when I began. I've always had uh, an ability to write it. Uh, I remember being told by teachers in high school that I could write and that I had uh, imaginative language and so on. Of course, I didn't hear any of that. That just didn't impress me. Uh, I began writing poetry uh, later in life. I uh, um, wrote some plays. Uh, I was an actor and a playwright, 
and a director, and I wrote a play called Short Timers, and then another play called Victims, and then I wrote uh, for film. And uh, poetry just sort of happened at um, a point in my life where there was a lot of change going on. I had moved to Massachusetts from New York City, and uh, my life was in a lot of turmoil, and I found that poetry uh, was the most immediate expression of that. So one poem after another uh, came out of that transition. Wow. Wow. And how, how old were you at that time that the transition I was, was uh, I was in my 40s, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I had had uh, a bad time with alcohol and uh, got sober at age 44, and at that point, life changed uh, a lot for me. I began to see a lot of stuff I hadn't been seeing, both internally and externally, and that invited a lot of poems. Mm. You know, um, you've said, I've heard you say in, in several places, that you didn't really awaken until you were 44, and you just have this really strong desire now to kind of seize life and the time that you have left. Um, was that associated with becoming sober? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so much of, of the good part of life is about becoming conscious, and you can't really mm. do that when you're drunk. Um, so, <laughs> right. you know, getting getting sober is, is like adding a whole new palette of colors to life. Uh, wow, what a beautiful way to say that. Um, and so your early poems, I know your first, your, your chapbook and your first collection both um, dealt with a lot of subject matter from the Vietnam War, correct? Mm-hmm. It did. Um, okay. Those poems uh, were contents under pressure. Um, I mm-hmm. began to write those poems, and they just kept coming out. Um, uh, you know, I have to work a little harder to write poems these days, but uh, those poems were waiting to be written, and when I put my pen to paper, they just happened uh, in a hurry. Well, your new poems are absolutely fabulous, too. So <laughs> yeah. um, I think whether you you had to really work hard for it or it came easily, it's still all of the same wonderful quality. So, um, well, thank would you. you like to read? Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Um, would you like to read Blues for us from The Moon Reflected Fire? Sure. Okay. Oh, wonderful. Blues. Love won't behave. I've tried all my life to keep it chained up, especially after I gave up pleading. I don't mean the woman, but the love itself. Truth is, I don't know where it comes from, why it comes, or where it goes. It either leaves me feeling the knife of my first breath or hangdog and sick at someone else's unstoppable and, as the blues song says, can't sit down, stand up, lay down, pain. Right now, I want it. I'm like a country who can't remember the last war. Well, that's not strictly true. It's just been too long. Too long, and my heart is like a house for sale and a lot full of high weeds. I want to go down to New Orleans and find the Santa Ria woman who will light a whole table full of candles and moan things, place a cigar and a shot of whiskey in front of Chango's picture and kiss the blue dead Jesus on the wall. I want something. Used to be I'd get a bottle 
and drink until the lights went out, but now I carry my pain around everywhere I go because I'm afraid I might put it down somewhere and lose it. I've grown tender about my mileage. My teeth are like Stonehenge, and my tongue is like an old druid fallen in a ditch. A soul is like a shrimper's net they never haul up, and it's full of everything. A tire, a shark, an old harpoon, a kid's plastic bucket, an empty half-pint, a broken guitar string, a pair of ballerina shoes with the ribbons tangled in an anchor chain, and the net gets heavier until the boat starts to go down with it, and you say, God, what is going on? In this condition, I say love is a good thing. I'm ready to capsize. I can't even see the shoreline. I haven't seen a seagull in three days. I'm ready to drink salt water, go overboard, and start swimming. Suffice it to say, I want to get in the bathtub with a Santeria woman and steam myself pure again. The priest that blesses the water may be bored, hung over. He may not even bless it. Just tell people he did. It doesn't matter. What the Santeria woman puts on it with her mind makes it like a holy mirror. You can float a shrimp boat on it. The spark that jumps between her mind and the priest's empty act is what makes the whole thing light up like an oil slick on fire against a sunset over Oaxaca. So if I just step out into it, if I just step off the high dive over a pool that may or may not have water in it, that act is enough to connect the two poles of something and make a long blue arc. I don't have a clue about any of this. Come on over here and love me. I used to say that drunk. Now I'm stark, raving, sober, and I say, come on over here and love me. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I thought, well, I'll, I'll quote back to him one of the passages I like, and I, I wanted to quote the entire poem back to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's start. I have so many questions and things that I want to say about this, but, but let's just start with the structure of it because I know that it was inspired by jazz and if I'm not mistaken by a specific song, correct? Mm-hmm. It was uh, John Coltrane's My Favorite Things mm-hmm. and uh, a long solo on that by him and the way that uh, he just sort of kept collecting images musical images and weaving them together and quoting parts of other music and and just, you know, creating this huge thing that began to weigh and weigh and weigh and at a certain point it began to fly. And I was wow. one of the best with Yeah. Well, that's that's what your poem does. <laughs> and <laughs> does the song also um, weave some of the same elements back through, like the Santiero woman who, who shows up over and over in the poem? Mm-hmm. That was just one of the things that got collected into the poem. I had read a book on mm-hmm. uh, Yoruba religion and, and mm-hmm. Santeria, and uh, so that just was one of the, the images kicking around in my head that fed into the poem. And, mm-hmm. You know, this is kind of like what what Coltrane was doing, I think. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, to be able to take that from music and then take that same structure and translate it into poetry totally, totally successfully. 
Um, and I love your portrayal of the soul as well, you know, that the soul is like a, a shrimper's net <laughs> and it's full of everything. It's got tires and sharks and harpoons and plastic buckets. Um, you know, it's not pure and simple. I think we've been conditioned to sort of think of the soul in a certain way, that that the soul is somehow simpler than, than our lives are. But but you say no. <laughs> Here's the well, I think, you know, I think we have uh, a sequence of selves in our life. We change selves through life, but we don't change uh, the whole larger part of ourselves. You know, it's like, a, it's almost as if the soul is a collection of all those other selves, all those masks, all those experiences, all the scars. And there's a coherence about a soul, even though its borders are, are not clearly defined. Um, it's a soft uh, uh, image full of color and light, and, and it collects everything we've been. Wow. Well, you know, it, it's, the same concept as the structure of the poem itself. It's it's getting heavy and heavy until it flies, you know. Um, also, I was really interested in the the ablution, not only in this poem, but in so many of your poems, like um, purification and the war. There there are so many of these where the the female character, whether it's a woman or a child or a goddess, possesses and embodies this power to sort of heal and purify, but it's complicated. You know, the overtones are often sexual, and it's not what we would typically think of as pure. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I, um, you know, like the, uh, nothing is pure. I mean, I, I don't believe in the neatly defined Cartesian mind-body, soul-body uh, subject object thing that we are a blur i mean you know we are we are a fugue of uh, many strands uh, and resistances and and passions and transcendences and um it's complicated and uh, you know and we're in a sense that our life stains us you know it, it comes up with a really beautiful beautiful wild color of stain um and you know that that's to me, that's that's what it's like, you know. It's a, and and the women, you know, I, I've always I, I love women, and uh, I had uh, I had a difficult time with my mother, and uh, that uh, I knew a lot of women outside the family who had enough sense to uh, give me uh, love, even as a kid, that I you know that I obviously needed but wasn't getting. And so I began to look to women as, as um, uh, a way out of a lot of the despair I felt in many times of my life. Um, I know that, you know, I sent you uh, some drawings from uh, a journal I've been keeping. And um, when I was little, when I was five or six, uh, um, and there was a lot of misery in the house and a lot of chaos and uh, I would lie in bed at night, and I would imagine that um, there was I had a little sister, uh, or um. a, a female, uh, a female person who would come and get in my bed and hug me and hold me. Oh. And that's what I would go to sleep with. And uh, later in life, that uh, that became a very powerful kind of woman, an angelic woman, you know. Uh, a woman who was capable of wielding a sword, uh, 
I, you know, I guess that that archetype weaves itself through the work, and um, uh, you know, I mean, I have uh, poems about prostitutes, you know, having a, mm-hmm. a spiritual connection with prostitutes. Um, I was uh, a jazz drummer when I was very young, uh, when I was seventeen. As a matter of fact, I would I was playing strip clubs, and uh, that's what you wanted to do if uh, you wanted to play jazz, because in the after hours, all the jazz musicians would show up and jam. So I was a show drummer, and uh, I got to know strippers, and I got to know prostitutes, and uh, there were two prostitutes um, in Tucson who sort of looked out for me. You know, it's a, I, I push, pushed their, their mother button somehow. <laughs> and uh, they kind of, you know, they kind of watched out for me in the snake pit, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I think it may, I, I think they felt good about it. They, it was something they could do that made them feel good. And mm-hmm. so I was, uh, I was uh, the beneficiary of that energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this the, the women show up in a lot of different kinds of uh, roles in the poems, and uh, most of them are healing. You know, well, even, that's even what when I mean. even, yeah, even when they're prostitutes. Right, right, and it's that it's it's always complex. There's always a combination of of you know that um, purity and impurity together. Always, no matter whether it's a child or a prostitute or a child prostitute, <laughs> whoever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But on on the topic of healing and journaling, which you just mentioned, um, I would love to know more about, I know you're working on some healing journals right now that were inspired by Fellini's journal, and I would love to hear a little bit about that. Well, I was over at a friend's house the other day, and there was this huge book underneath the uh, coffee table, and I pulled it out and started looking at it, and it was uh, a collection of drawings and writings that Fellini did when he was uh, in psychotherapy. And I didn't know about this. And, of course, I don't know how many people know this, but Fellini was an extraordinary artist as well as filmmaker. Um, and he made his living after the war doing caricatures on the streets of Rome. Um, you know, and he, uh, he has this incredible imagination, which he was quite able to put down on paper as well as on film. And I, I, I was just amazed looking at these things. And he was dealing with Jungian archetypes and these incredible, powerful women, and and uh, just his dream life generally. And he did two types of dreaming, the kind that you have when you're sleeping, and then he would lie on the couch and dream with his eyes wide open, you know, which mm-hmm. is something that people you and I, like you and I, can do. You mm-hmm. know? And, uh, I was so moved by this that I determined that I was going to do my own version of that. I'm not anywhere near the artist he is. Uh, the, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> You're very but uh, anyhow, it's just a, it's such a blast to do. And you know, I get up in the morning, and the first thing I do is is that I do a drawing, and then I do some writing around that. Right. You know, rather than asking you what other arts you do, or are there any arts you don't do? I mean, <laughs> you do photography and drawing, and you've done music and acting. Um, it's, well, it's I did, you know, I, 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 did, I did a little bit of every. They're all related. I mean, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, I think writing is the one that I've stuck with and focused on more than any of the others. Although photography seems to be catching up, um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking for ways 
of combining these. Um, there is a wonderful New York Times photographer by the name of Marissa Roth who uh, went to the Philippines uh, a few years ago, like maybe 20 years ago, and she did a bunch of photographs and a book called Burning Heart. And uh, she invited her friend Jessica Hagedorn to write poems for this book of, uh, of photographs. And she did it in such a way that, that the poems did not uh, explain the photographs and the photographs did not illustrate the poems, but somehow uh, the poetry and the visuals formed a kind of counterpoint that was really wonderful. And that's the mm. kind of thing that I'm looking to do next. Great. That sounds wonderful. And you also have a new collection of poetry that you're putting together, correct? I do. I, uh, I'm in the editing stage of a new book. Wonderful. Um, would you read us a poem from that? Maybe sure. Rough Beast? Is, that, is Rough Beast from that one? Uh, it is. Um, oh, I'd love this is a This is a poem that's inspired by uh, The Second Coming of Yeats, which has always been a very troublesome poem to me because of this line, uh, the best lack all conviction and uh, the worst are full of passionate intensity. I've never been able to understand what he was trying to say. I sort of do. I sort of do. It's just, it seems like that in times of, uh, of great conflict, uh, uh, gentle people become internal and dialectical and non-gentle people become simple-minded and operate out of their reptile brains. And so this is how I've been interpreting that. Nevertheless, it's never quite become comfortable. So I figured I'd write a poem into it. Uh, this is called Rough Beast on a Troublesome Poem of Yeats. We are aware that Jack Boot Jack, if not kept busy rutting at the bar, will outshout the quieter music, trample the part of us that knows we can't kill off our ugly spirit, but strive to soothe his arrogance with mirrors, toys, and glitz. We gild and gild his cage so he doesn't see the bars, but merely licks and rubs himself against them. We do not lack all conviction, no, and neither do we let him take his bludgeon out into the night to cloud the rain with blood. His passionate intensity is neither passion nor intensity, but cowardice that closes down the heart. How simple to kill off the mind snakes we've invested others with, without knowing we are the venom. It should make him slouch, but away from Bethlehem, into the desert to be burned away to ash and scattered by the wind. But he won't agree to that. So we keep him close where we can see him, humor him in his reptilian joy. It's called being human and it's a ploy. But it keeps us whole, this double soul, this responsibility. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> and there it is again. Nothing sanitized. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, we aren't, know, we aren't pure. We have shadows. I know. <laughs> you know, what, what I really, really want to know is your poems feel they're so wild and uninhibited and raw. And like in the quote that I said in, in the beginning, how Martina Spada said they're fearless. 
And I'm just wondering, you know, it's not easy for everyone to do this, to write like this. And how do you or how do you feel that you got to that point in life and in a sitting at the computer or at your journal where you can just fearlessly and honestly call yourself to the page like that? Well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't uh, stop myself when I write. I don't edit myself initially. Um, I, I give in to what comes up. Uh, on a good day, I can do that. I'm, I don't always achieve it. But um, I, I try to keep myself open. You know, I, I figure at this point in my life, uh, it's to become more and more open is, is what I want to do, to com- continue to open, to continue to be available for uh, remarkable things. And mm-hmm. if I can achieve this in writing, if I can become available for for the things that my mind is is reaching for, uh, mm-hmm. I can make that into a poem. Wow! Um, and how do you do it? <laughs> I'm how just do I do it? In your brain here. I'm just saying, how do you do yeah. it? Because I think most people just run shrieking in fear. You know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, you don't. Well, you know, it's, how, uh, how do you it, stay with it? Um, well, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's like uh, it's like shamanism or, or some kind of mystical rite. You've got to do it right. You've got to please the gods, so to speak. You've got to do the uh, the sacrifice right. You have to have all the right instruments, burn the right incense. I don't know. I'm just I'm just uh, <laughs> you know. Th- there's a certain I'm being metaphorical here. I don't burn incense when I write. Uh, but you know, it's a matter of preparing the self to accept what wants to come. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, on a good day, I can do this. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes uh, there are different triggers. You know, it's like this was a line from Yeats. Um, another thing may be a smell. I may get triggered by a smell. Um, I may get triggered by a memory. But you know, to put myself in the position to be possessed by that for as long as it takes to get a poem out of it is the name of the game. Mm. Well, it's extraordinary, and it's a gift, and not everybody has it. So, um, Would you read us another poem? Yes. Okay. This is, uh, this is called Live Myth. I finally had to admit that unicorns annoyed me, uh, especially... <laughs> Yeah, because they're, you know, they, well, anyhow, I, I, I know real horses, and unicorns always seem to be, you know, too Disney. Anyhow, this is, uh, this is called Live Myth. I would believe in the unicorn if it stood heaving and slathered, snapping flies off its flank with its tail. It does not smell of sweat and stable, does not snort at the wolf in the brush, and twitch its ears. A unicorn does not get dirty, kick up mud when it runs. I know that I would throw my leg over a bareback horse sooner than I'd step into the stirrup of a saddled unicorn. For spite, I'd shoot and slaughter one, roast choice bits over a fire, and hang its horn from my belt, just to outrage the legions of tourists of the imagination, the kind who flock to seances or invite Rasputin to tea. A unicorn is impossibly cute. It doesn't shit or rub its rump against a tree, but a horse 
neck around at a dog's yip and break your jaw can brain you with a hoof. It makes the ground shake. Look at him, the black pool of his eye, muscle rippling along the flanks, and how he stands placid, chewing, as the little girl lies on top of him, braiding his mane, whispering, my magic, my magic, my boy. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you. You know, um, I read that poem earlier today, and it made me cry. (laughs) (laughs) The ending is so beautiful um, and just magical. What inspired the poem? Um, I uh, I just, uh, an irritation with unicorns. (laughs) I'm sincere. You know, I'm just saying, you know, like, what? You know, it's like, it's this feeling that if we really see things in life, uh, they require no fantasy. You know, if Mm. we're really able to, to, to see a horse, for example, what an extraordinary thing a horse is. You know, to really see that horse, then you don't need the unicorn. Or to see a river or to see a person. You know, to be mm-hmm. completely present with something without any of the filters, without the, uh, uh, the, the silly little mind games, to be able to open to something as it is. Then we don't need mm-hmm. fantasy. You know, there's something there, though. There's there's something dangerous and messy and real, just like in the other poems. I mean, it can it can um, break your jaw. You know, it can bring yeah. you with the hook. So, in a sense, in these poems, it's I mean, it's the divine, but it's also danger. It's the same kind of danger that that we were just talking about about entering into a poem. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. present in the poems and. Um, Anyway, I I noticed that somebody has been sitting on the line the whole time we've been talking, and I'm wondering if they might like to ask a question. So I'm just going to bring them on and see if if it's one of your fans, because I know you have many. Hello? Hello. Um, Someone with the 520 area code, would you like to ask a question? Oh, this is, yeah. Is it, yeah. uh, My name is Raymond Keene. I'm the author of Love Poems for Cannibals. Uh, I wanted to read one of his poems. I'm a Vietnam veteran, uh, two years older than Mr. Anderson. Uh was in Vietnam, 67, 68. I was a clinical psychologist attached to the 1st Marine Division. He was attached to the Marine Corps as a corpsman. My, some of my very best friends were corpsmen. Uh, I was in a rear area. But I really identified with, well, I identify with his the grandeur of his writing and the brutality of it, but I also identify with what he's been through, although he was really in the, if you'll pardon my French, the shit, I was in a rear area. But I loved what he said about the succor provided by the feminine, and I love his poem, Purification. Uh, and he could, maybe he could read it, or I would read it, but it, it's in his The Moon Reflected Fire in 1994, Alice James publication. Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to read it because I don't have the book in front of me. So. It's a miracle of a poem. Okay, and I gather maybe he was like me. He was in. A, I went to Taiwan on R and R, and he probably was on R and R when he when he wrote about this purification. In Taiwan, a child washes me in a tub as if I were hers. 
At 15, she has tried to conceal her age with makeup, says her name is Cher. Across the room, her dresser has become an altar, looming largest photos of her three children, one black, one with green eyes, one she still nurses, then a row of red votive candles, and in front, a Buddha, a Christ, a Mary. She holds my face to her breasts, rocks me. There is blood still under my fingernails from the last man who died in my arms. I press her nipple in my lips, feel a warm stream of sweetness. I want to be this child's child. I will sleep for the first time in days. That's an amazing poem. That was Thank a marvelous you. reading of an amazing poem. <laughs> um, would you tell us a little bit more? Is it Raymond? Yeah, my name is Raymond Keen and uh Raymond Keen. Yes, you're a and my I'm a friend of Ducks on Facebook. He doesn't know me, but uh I published a book, uh Love Poems for Cannibals this year in in February. I, I wouldn't mind reading in one of my Vietnam poems with, uh, but maybe I don't have, you don't have time for that. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Doug? I'll leave that to you. Um, a short one maybe. Okay, and then I was going to read a longer one. I'll read a short one then. This is an ironic. Maybe, maybe this is ironic months. and short. Yeah, uh, we, we, I'm sorry, it's, this is Jeff. We, um, it's, these shows go so quickly, and we have so much to, to try to fit in in a short amount of time. Shall I read a short or just not? If you say yeah, no, that's great. fine. No, no, great. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. Okay. Anyway, this, this is a shorter poem. It's ironic. I was in a rare area. Shake and Bake Ensign's Short Timer Song. And it's like a song, so the, the stanzas are repeated. The Vietnam War is not Dinky Dow, not number 10, because I was lucky enough to snap Boku pictures for my color slide collection. That first slide there, that's me with my Mother's Day medal, number one, outstanding. Hooch Girl asks me, when you finish Vietnam, GI? I tell Hooch Girl, this is my wake up. So how about one last short time for this short timer? Because I am gung-ho to Didi Mao. Didi Mao and the Freedom Bird, back to the world. Pan Am makes one going great. Makes the going great. Number one, outstanding. And then actually, I can the uh, that that is repeated that verse, and then the last one mm-hmm. is repeated again. That the Vietnam War is not Dinky Dao, not number ten, because I was lucky enough to snap Boku pictures for my color slide collection. That first slide there, that's me with my Mother's Day medal, number one, outstanding. Uh, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much oh, thank for you. for sharing that with us. Um, and, and before and you speak. hang up, would you just quickly maybe tell us um, what it was about purification that, that moved you enough to want to read it to us? Oh, my God. That, that he has uh, such honesty and such hunger for coming from the pain and slaughter and having, like he says, uh, blood still under my fingernails from mm-hmm. the last man who died in my arms. And then he... Mm-hmm. This uh, transcendent experience with a child who's a, a mother and 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 so sweet, almost a a mother figure. I mean, a Mary figure, uh, and it's just pure. He calls it purification, and mm-hmm. that he mm-hmm. would find such purification on R and R in in the sweet arms of a of a young woman is there's just it's magical. Well, thank you so you much. Know, I identify with it because uh, yeah. I I went on R and R. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I didn't have the, you know, God bless for serving his country. I served my country, but I was 
like I say, I never fired a shot, nor did I ever see one die, anyone die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, thank I you so much for calling in, did. and you have a, a, a wonderful night, and we really, really appreciate yeah. your mm-hmm. reading. Okay, goodbye. You. Bye-bye. Doug? Yes. I wanted to make sure we got to talk about um, your mentor, Jack Gilbert, and Group 18. Um, I would love to know, you know, what it was like to work with him and what it meant to you to be a part of this group. And I believe, even though Jack has passed on, the group continues. Is that correct? Uh, the group does continue. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jack died last year. Okay, and and how how did you come to that group? And um, I uh, I was just looking for a poetry group, and uh, I had written this this seventeen uh, page poem that became the core of my first book, um, and uh, somebody suggested uh, this group that met in the Finnegan's house on Monday nights, and so I went over there and uh, read a poem, and you know, and somewhat, and I passed. Uh, the audition. Uh, Jack Gilbert was there. Linda Gregg was there. Robert Hill Long was there. Uh, Jim and Susan Finnegan, uh, Margaret Lloyd. There was just a remarkable group of people uh, there. Kurt Brown was in that group. Um, and uh, Jack immediately uh, decided that the, the poem that I'd brought in, which was 17 pages long, believe it or not, uh, was uh, worth working with, and the first thing he said to do is, you need to break this into 17 separate poems. And uh, he talked about that. So I did that, and then for the next uh, six months or so, I was shaping those poems. Uh, Jack was, uh, it was very difficult. I mean, it was, um, uh, working with him, I, I knew that this was uh, the big leagues. You know, this wasn't a beginner's experience and uh, that it would be rigorous working with him. And uh, it was not always fun because he was extremely blunt about uh, what was working and what wasn't working, not in a mean sense, but he just, uh, he was older, and I don't think he had just, he had the time to talk a lot about things. He was just going to for what was essential and uh, what was true to him. And so I had the benefit of that honesty. And, of course, I also had the benefit of his ideas about poetry and his own poetry. Uh, he was bringing in poems from uh, the book that would be called The Great Fires, which I think is his best book. Uh, and he was bringing one poem after another into the group and blowing everybody away. We were speechless. You know, how do you, how do you speak to a poem like that? Um, mm-hmm. And I was very lucky. It was really a matter of timing. And mm-hmm. um, uh, it's one of the most valuable things that's ever happened in my life. Mm, wonderful, thank you. Um, okay, so we're we're actually about to close. Do you have any other publications or events coming up that you'd like to announce, or um, is there a website you'd like to send people to where they can follow you? Um, um, I don't have a website at present. Um, I, I will have a, a book uh, which I hope to. Uh, get published in the near future, uh, and I'm continuing to uh, write uh, prose as well as poetry. Um, I have had several readings in the last few months. I don't have any scheduled for a while, but uh, thank Mm -hmm. you for asking. Oh, sure. Yes, you were giving readings like every two weeks for a while there, it seemed like. Yeah. 
but during the summer things kind of close down a little bit, so yeah. possibly in the fall. Yeah. Okay, well, um, thank you so much. It, it really has been an honor to be able to talk to you about this, and, and you know, I just admire you so much and, and your work, so thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Good talking yeah. to you. You too. Before we close, I'd like to let our listeners know that you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of Tefera Journal at our website, www.teferajournal.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the new Tefera Talk book. It's a collection of interviews from the first year of Tefera Talk Radio. And also have a look at the special invitation from Hay House Publishers to join authors Marianne Williamson, Nancy Levin, and Reed Tracy for a writer's workshop in San Francisco October 5th through 6th. As well, Hay House would like to let you know about their Speak, Write, and Promote workshop with Cheryl Richardson and Reed Tracy in New York City, November 1st through November 3rd. Our next interview will be August 19th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with author Anne Hood. We hope you'll join us then, and in the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness, and fulfilling work. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>